Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Law enforcement agencies are still on high alert after a series of suspicious packages were mailed to high-profile figures in the Democratic Party, including former Presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. In a news conference yesterday, NYPD Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism John Miller confirmed the explosive devices were connected. It appears that an individual or individual sent out multiple similar packages. Joining me is William Banks, professor at Syracuse Law School. Bill, on the one hand, it looks like this was well-coordinated. They came at the same time. But on the other, wrong addresses, misspellings, insufficient postage. What's your take on the person or persons behind the bombs? It does look like it was not a terribly sophisticated uh, campaign or attack with the misspellings use of, uh, you know, the, po- the Postal Service and stamps, wrong addresses and the like. On the other hand, you know, there, there were, uh, you know, about 10 of these, I guess, that have been detected so far. And they did manage to get at least through the postal system without uh, being detected. So it, it's certainly a, a worrisome case. The Secret Service, Secret Service, of course, takes special measures to screen the mail of the public figures it protects. But some of the people here are obviously not under Secret Service protection. Reportedly, the one sent to Robert De Niro, the actor, was discovered at an office in New York. Are we coming to a time when packages will have to be picked up at a post office or screened before they're delivered? Uh, that would not be uh, uh, a crazy uh, thought. I think that's possible in the future. You know, we have postal inspectors now, and they've been doing much more, particularly since the uh, the anthrax letters soon after 9-11. <clears throat> the, the type and rate of postal inspection of packages increased greatly, not just to public officials, but uh, to all of us. But it's impossible to routinely screen every piece of mail uh, that is of a package size to determine what's in it. So it could be that we'll have remote collection. Uh, it could be also that that we'll learn uh, something, we'll, we'll identify who these perpetrators or a single perpetrator uh, is or was, and, and, uh, and the threat will be uh, diagnosed and perhaps it will go away. You know, we, we've had a number of instances like this. Um, we go back to the anthrax letters is probably the most prominent example since 9-11. But back before that, uh, the Unabomber, it took an awfully long time to find Ted Kaczynski, I think 16 years or something like that. Very long, Uh, yeah. Yeah, they never did actually uh, apprehend the anthrax uh, 
a mailer, although they likely identified him and he committed suicide before he was apprehended. These can be very easy cases to solve or very hard cases. And I think it's fair to say that our investigative uh, techniques, the the science of it all, forensics as well as uh, surveillance capabilities and DNA, are far advanced compared to what they were even after the anthrax letters. Is it incredibly lucky that none of the bombs exploded, or were they meant to cause fear rather than injury? Yeah, we're not sure yet, but it could well be the latter, uh, because uh, some of these, at least from the reporting I saw, uh, had timers. You don't use timers on devices that are sent through the mail, uh, obviously, because you know you, the, the mail is of indeterminate length. Uh, so it, they could have been uh, fake or without any kind of way to, to explode. But those that were uh, capable of exploding, certainly some of them were, they were certainly powerful enough to have injured or killed a person. What's your reaction to President Trump's response? He did make a call for unity yesterday morning, but last night at a rally and in tweets today, he blamed the media and his po- opponents for anger in our society. Uh, yeah, his his first public statement was a very good statement. Uh, I wish he would stick to those. Those are appropriate. That's what the President of the United States should be saying, uh, not just once, but routinely. And I'm afraid that his uh, rhetoric uh, has certainly contributed to the atmosphere that makes the fear all the more palpable. It's a really sad uh, a moment, I think, in our society. I want to turn to another topic for a moment, which is the New York Times is reporting that President Trump continues to use an unsecured iPhone and that American intelligence reports indicate that Chinese spies are often listening. Trump tweeted about the story and says that he rarely uses a cell phone, and when he does, it's government authorized, and he said it was a fake story. What is the danger with the president using an unsecured iPhone? <laughs> it's a great danger. And it's not only the Chinese who are listening. Anyone <laughs> with a, a sort of a moderate degree of hacking capability can listen in on an iPhone. So the Russians are listening, the Iranians are listening, who knows who else. And he's talking to his friends. I'm not sure he's conducting business on his personal iPhones. I hope not. But uh, but they're learning things about his style, the, what he likes to talk about, what his interests are, what's on his mind. That's a very dangerous thing to do, and his staff should try to put a kibosh on it as quickly as possible. So even if he's not talking about classified information, if he's just talking to his friends, it's still dangerous? Of course it is, because, again, you're learning about the man and, and what you uh, can gain. Uh, by learning about the man in terms of the of the negotiations or diplomacy or communications that another state needs to have with them, it's, it's a real advantage for them. I don't think we're capable of doing the same thing with foreign leaders that they're capable of doing with him because of the security of their devices. Is this a similar concern that the uh, continuing debate over Hillary Clinton's emails raised? Well... Yeah, I think uh, her uh, the shortcomings in her security, uh, to the extent that I recall the details, were not nearly as grave as this. Uh, it was an email server that might have allowed some things to slip through that should not have been uh, insecure. If he's doing this on a regular basis using his own uh, phone that's not been secured, just that for everyday communications, it's a much more serious uh, you- flaw. 
Do you mm-hmm. remember, I'm just trying to remember, did President Obama, was he forced to use a BlackBerry or something for security reasons? Yeah, whatever he was, he either went from BlackBerry to iPhone or vice versa on account of the security. I think he was, there was, I remember a report that he was un, unhappy, but uh, resigned to the fact that he had to give up on his favorite uh, device. That's what I remember. All right, thanks so much, Bill, as always. That's William Banks. He's a professor at Syracuse Law School. In August, lawyers for ExxonMobil stood before a New York judge and told the state's attorney general to put up or shut up in its three-year investigation into the oil giant's public disclosures about climate change. Well, yesterday, Attorney General Barbara Underwood did just that. She filed a fraud lawsuit against Exxon in state court in Manhattan. Joining me is Charles Warren, chair of the environmental law practice at Kramer Levin. Chuck, the lawsuit alleges that Exxon misled investors regarding climate change, basically setting up two sets of books for proxy costs. Tell us more about the allegations. Yes, what? June, what they're really saying is that in their proxy statements that they issued to the public, they listed their costs uh, related to climate change, and they listed them really at higher levels than they actually uh, applied them internally. And so if they had used those public costs, what the suit is saying, if they had actually taken the costs as they were um, represented to the public, they would have caused, they would have had a right, you know, a lot of write-downs and, and shorter asset lives and things like that that would have cost them money. And so they're saying that uh, they didn't apply it to the, their oil sands projects in Canada, and, and they had sort of an undercounting of greenhouse gas-related expenses by more than $25 billion over the lifetime. Those are some of the, you know, those are some of the things that they're saying. And so they're saying this was really a fraud perpetrated on the public because they were giving the public one set of costs that they said were related to the climate change, but they were using another set lower when they were actually doing things on the ground. So so they weren't writing off things that they might have written off. They weren't attributing more costs when they should have attributed more costs. And so that's what they're saying. They're saying it's a fraud under the state Martin Act, which is their New York securities law, which is a fairly broad statute and has been used by uh, attorney generals of of the state of New York uh, to bring all kinds of uh, suits related to uh, stock issues, stock market manipulation, and things like that. So, Chuck, this is a change from the kind of climate change lawsuits we've been seeing and which have been getting dismissed, which blame the fossil fuel industry for creating climate change. This is really going back to the basics of a shareholder fraud lawsuit that the AG's office has used so many times before. That, that's correct, June. That's exactly what they're doing. They're saying that Exxon has committed a fraud on the public and, and, and people who bought their securities based on these statements proxy statements, public statements, uh, have been defrauded. The state's been defrauded, and they want them to pay, you know, stop doing it and pay penalties. And to the extent there are any profits that are related to it, uh, give up those profits. And then, But this is more in the it's, – it's obviously related to climate change, but it's more in the context of your normal securities-type uh, lawsuit that the government would bring against a company. 
Exxon, as we've discussed before, has been waging a no-holds-barred counterattack against investigations by the New York AG as well as the Massachusetts AG, saying the investigations are politically motivated, violate the First Amendment, and so on. Who seems to be winning that battle at this point? No, well, at this point, uh, really, the governments have won. Both New York and Massachusetts have, uh, you know, beaten back the efforts by Exxon to get the lawsuit dismissed or quashed uh, because of, you know, political considerations, First Amendment considerations, all kinds of those things. And um, they really have been unsuccessful at this point, and it doesn't look like they are going to succeed. I mean, uh, so it looks like this is some... This is a suit that will end up, unless there's some kind of a settlement, uh, you know, going to trial at some point. Chuck, during the hearing before the New York judge in August, the New York AG, the deputy New York AG, said that there was some smoking gun evidence that they had. Do they disclose that in the lawsuit, in the allegations? Um, you know, I haven't seen that. But uh, they they probably could mean some of the things that they talked about, uh, re, you know, related to the oil sands stuff in Canada and things like that. And maybe that's what they're talking about. I'm not. I'm not. But I haven't seen that, uh, Jim. So they're they're also alleging that this went to the top and that former CEO yeah. Rex Tillerson knew about these. Yes, absolutely. They 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 have alleged that Rex Tillerson was intimately involved in doing this and played a key role in this whole effort. Chuck, you know, Exxon has been trying in different ways to, you know, revive or brush up its its uh, reputation in this area. How much damage will this lawsuit do to that? Well, I think uh, it, it will do some damage, June. There's no doubt about it. I, I think a lot will depend, obviously, on how it plays out, the lawsuit. Uh, but as you indicated, Exxon has done a lot of work. Uh, they funded a lot of climate change reports. Uh, they're not denying that climate change, uh, you know, is, is man-made. They're investing in a lot of renewable energy sources. I think they're doing that, you know, because it makes sense from a number of perspectives. And so they're trying actually quite hard, I think, to, uh, as you indicated, to burnish their reputation in this area. And this obviously a, a suit like this doesn't help. And I think a lot will depend on how it uh, plays out and, you know, whether you get a lot of uh, things that are shown to have occurred, uh, you know, and and things that they suppressed. It's almost like the tobacco uh, lawsuits where, as those lawsuits unfolded, uh, information came out uh, that the companies knew way beforehand about this. And that's the kind of, I think those are the kinds of things that they run the risk of uh, having happened to them. All right. Thanks so much, Chuck. That's Charles Warren of Kramer 11. Exxon spokesperson has said these baseless allegations are a product of closed door lobbying by special interests, political opportunism, and the attorney general's inability to admit that a three-year investigation has uncovered no wrongdoing. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.